Welcome back to the show. I'm not giving much introduction to this episode, but I do still make at least a monthly video on my YouTube channel, Anubis2814. But it's usually something I really want to highlight, and so I use pictures and such. Since everything I do is pretty much audio on the channel anyway, I can save time for going the video element now to focus on more things on down the line. This video is part one and two of my channel combined, and next week is three and four combined. Since I'm calling corporations evil, I'm not getting monetized for it, so consider chipping in a little on Patreon if you find this enlightening. Please sit back and enjoy, or sit in horror in the fetal position, at Corporations Have Always Been Evil Part 1. We hear about the evils of capitalism on the left. The right talks about being pro-business to create more jobs and touts laissez-faire capitalism as the best in human history. Liberals blame crony capitalism, also called corporatism, which is actually a term used in anarchist theory, but HuffPo apparently has the final word on definitions. Liberals tend to believe in capitalism as the free market, and so long as corporations are well regulated and pay for their taxes, they are great and essential to our economy. There is no other alternative possible way to get all the stuff we need. Many young people in America were irritated at the Democratic Party for falling in love with Silicon Valley, who spoke of a new liberal capitalism, which instead allowed for the failing gig economy to get around labor protections, and Russia to hack America's information stream, filling it with garbage and misinformation. But what if I told you the problem is not with regulations or low taxes, but the idea of corporations themselves? And even worse, corporations are now, and have always been, from their very conception, evil. And by evil I mean they are amoral, with one goal, money for a bunch of different people who don't know each other, made by a long chain of deniability so that people in each link of the chain can bend the rules slightly, but that accumulated bending becomes horrific atrocities and no individual can take the blame for it. So many people are in the chain and benefit from it that they will do anything to keep it going, including rationalizing and normalizing the process because they themselves aren't doing evil, and marketing and lobbying and PR will be used to ensure the laws stay the same or shift in the corporation's favor. They're now a self-sustaining entity that's impossible to kill, that are now way too big to fail. This is called the banality of evil, that the true causes of evil are actually boring bureaucracy. We prefer a supervillain, that's how our brain works. An evil, all-powerful, crazy, hateful person who can be defeated and all the evil will go away. Why Hitler and Stalin stick in our minds so much, but people fail to realize that it was a boring and banal march of systemic evil that allowed all the evil people to rise to power. Villains make a great story, we love simple and black and white. Going through in complex detail about why these villains rose to power, and why people gave that villain power, does not make for good entertainment. Knowing how Nazis and Stalin rose to power, and that it could actually happen here, is not taught in our schools at all. People assume Hitler was never elected and just seized power like an 80s cartoon villain, and made the German nation evil through sheer force of will. Most don't know that the Atlantic slave trade was slow to get off the ground for one specific product, and it spread, and at one point in the US, it was considered on its way out the door because it was economically non-viable, until the invention of the cotton gin changed everything, making slavery a super cash cow. But to get to the point of understanding, we must travel back in time to the very first corporation, 
or an organization with a large collection of private funders protected from bankruptcy for individual shareholders who didn't know each other, disconnected from the community they would impact, that set up a chain of deniability to rationalize their atrocities. We are of course discussing the Dutch East India Company. Chapter 1. The Spice Trade The Dutch East India Company was the first of its kind. Founded in 1602, it was meant to have a 20-year charter and then dissolve like all other corporations at the time. This was different though as the shareholders didn't have much control of running the company. There was a board that ran it and the shareholders didn't know each other. The purpose of the company was explicitly to establish a monopoly on spice through coercion and violence. Being the first to sell stocks, they also established the world's first stock market. For the first 200 years, corporations were not used for trade in Europe, just specifically to violently extract goods from foreign lands through their own private navies and armies. Their first target was the Banda Islands, which held all the world's supply of spices of mace, cloves, and nutmeg, which were more precious than gold in Europe. If you were a sailor who could smuggle a bag of cloves back with you from a trip, you were set for life. The Dutch hired mercenaries in the region to act as enlisted soldiers, while officers were all Dutch. This practice became the norm through the rest of history in colonial corporations. They brought to the largest Banta Island Japanese mercenaries and told the chiefs of the island that they could no longer trade with the English. They forced them to sign a document they couldn't read, and only on one island even though every other island was essentially its own country. They gave gifts of wool and velvet, which are useless in tropical climates, in exchange for the promise that the natives didn't understand. They built a fort, and all of this made the islanders mad that the company prevented them from trading their own goods, so much so that they had an uprising and killed the head of the company, but his replacement went through and massacred and burned villages in revenge for killings. The Dutch were beaten in battle and had to flee their ships. They then blockaded the island, who ended up giving up as the island was not self-sufficient because they had focused solely on growing spices. The Dutch East India Company now owned this island, stealing the land out from under them. Corporations started using this model all over Asia. There was enough spice for everyone in the world, but the Dutch cornered the market and even burned and exterminated spices on other islands. This was a strategized move to get the finances to maintain and grow their private military. They also began exporting the islanders as slaves to Dutch slave markets. War was essential to trade, and trade was essential to war, in a never-ending cycle. Half of Dutch and British wealth came from this enterprise, and so many beautiful buildings you see in the Netherlands were built using this blood money. The English and Dutch East India companies fought each other brutally until their governments forced them to play nice, but Jan Cohen, a Dutch officer, broke the rules and killed and drove out English and got a slap on the wrist because profits. The Dutch East India Company declined 200 years later, and the government took over their territories. The British East India Company was founded in 1600, a few years earlier than the Dutch version, and had a much more traditional model, but was barely able to maintain itself. But it was reformed to be like the Dutch Company, in 1650 under Cromwell. Their target, however, was not spice, but saltpeter for gunpowder. The biggest supply of saltpeter was in India. There was a ton of interest in India at the time because of saltpeter and many competing armies. The Mughal Empire was dying and it was easy to corrupt local officials. Robert Clive, known as Clive of India, grew in the ranks and realized that unlike local armies who were press-ganged into fighting and had little military experience, European and company soldiers could easily slaughter or run off a local army and there was little or nothing to stop them. 
So he began hiring out armies to local princes to fight their wars in exchange for better trade deals. Over time, the British ended up over time the British ended up gaining pretty much all power over most of India's saltpeter, and the corporations got massively rich. They didn't really care who the people in charge were, so long as they continued to give them those sweet deals on the goods they wanted. Chapter two: Colonialism. Once the British and Dutch East India companies realized just how easy it was to take over nations thanks to their guns, the market opened up. They had no concept or care about national sovereignty of others, and they were able to suppress their brutality from being known by people back home. They used PR stunts back home to inject doubt when ideas or rumors of brutality were heard back home, then rationalizing why it was essential and moral, either through jingoism, nationalism, or religion. The people back home were much more likely to believe the PR stunts because they benefited from the violence so much. Over time, colonialism became more and more systemic, and a game plan became normalized. Their plan involved pitting tribes and kingdoms against each other. These people had deep animosity against each other already, and they just split the rift wider by giving them weapons and resources to fight for them as an enlisted army. The officer corps was of course always white European to ensure a coup couldn't happen and they kept their fighters ignorant of things like logistics, tactics, and supply lines. They just got very, very good at fighting when pointed in the right direction. An entire warrior class became the staple of English corporate colonial systems, one class of natives suppressing the other class of natives. It was very cheap and efficient. It was very much akin to serfdom, just far away, so the lords who had money in the venture couldn't themselves be attacked by their serfs if they became angry, so brutalities went on and on. However, another form of hellish oppression was already going on that would plague the peoples of the world. Chattel slavery. The Portuguese hit upon a serious labor shortage for a grueling process of sugar refinement back in the early 1400s. They decided to capture some slaves from Africa and force them to work on an island off the coast of Portugal. This was a one-time thing. It was not a corporate endeavor and was a royal decree. It was supposed to be a single event for this particular special case, but it turned out to be fairly lucrative. At the time, the royals began rationalizing their brutality and introducing the idea of racial superiority of Europeans over their black slaves. Prior to this, it was cultural superiority that was discussed, as slavery usually allowed one from one culture to integrate into the other culture over a few generations. But pseudoscience began infusing its way into the zeitgeist of the time. Then the New World was discovered, and while corporations didn't start slavery, they ramped it up to industrial scale in a few hundred years. The natives were terrible slaves in the New World, as they kept dying of disease we brought over, so they discovered a much more financially efficient system of slavery. They would harvest raw goods from the New World, most often produced with slaves, take them to Europe to be processed, following the trade currents, then take the processed goods down following the currents to trade with African slave traders for slaves, and then sail using the Atlantic currents back to the New World to fill up on slave-harvested materials. No one sat down and decided this. It was an evolutionary process. The rationalization for being more and more awful because they didn't know the people they were oppressing, and the chain of deniability became more and more normalized and locked in. Every move they made was a profit-based issue, and morality be damned. It was only when things stopped being as profitable did they stop doing something. 
just as how slavery in Britain actually made sense from a business side of things for enough companies that Britain was able to end slavery without a war. But because of rubber profits, King Leopold was able to enslave and brutalize the entire nation of the Congo that he owned privately, and they're still suffering from PTSD and trying to recover and patch together an identity that was stripped of them for generations. It only was when enough bad press made the continuing of slavery in the Congo less profitable that they made the financial decision to finally do the right thing, and even then they refused to stop meddling in Congolese affairs, funding government rebels to break off and form a new nation of the Republic of the Congo, and its leaders were beholden to these nations to give them unfair deals at the expense of their people. The U.S. and Belgium had the President of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Patrice Lumumba, murdered because when he asked them for help, they provided none, so he turned to the Soviet Union for help, and America and Belgium then attacked him as a commie. The government had a coup, and Mumbutu Seseko, a former colonial sergeant of the warrior class under the Belgian officers, became the brutal strongman dictator of the Congo, setting them back yet again and allowing corruption to give corporations sweet deals at the expense of the people so he could live in luxury. This system is how America was formed and how the European empires enslaved and ransacked the entire world for 400 years. Corporations were the strong arm of colonialism. Now they're expected to use corporations to stop doing evil and are not doing so well at it. Britain became the best at using corporations for empire building. Chapter 3, Capitalism. Some of you may say, wait a minute, this isn't capitalism. This is mercantilism. Mercantilism is the idea that for a nation to be strong, it has to be self-sustaining. If it doesn't have the resources, it must go out and take the resources of someone else. It must control the supply of said good. It must also make all the finished products in their home country to create jobs while subjugating their colonies to just produce raw goods and be dependent on them for finished goods. Capitalism, on the other hand, is a very fuzzy term that means a lot of things to a lot of people. The word didn't even come into being until after the Civil War, around the time that Marx wrote Das Kapital. To people in favor of it, capitalism is the free market, the ability to exchange goods and services without a central authority telling people what they have to buy and how to set the price. This sort of thing was discussed in Adam Smith's On the Wealth of Nations. To people against capitalism, it refers to the ownership of stock in a company using money to make money off of the labor of others. Both are equally valid definitions, as they both came into use at the same time in history, but only one ended up in the dictionary. America was founded on free market capitalism, but with a very big catch. Corporations as we know them had zero bankruptcy protection, making them a non-viable option, as if the businesses failed, creditors could go after the shareholders too. This is where, in the Constitution, the government has the right to regulate every aspect of corporations. They could, with just a vote, dismantle all bankruptcy protections, ending corporations, and be completely constitutional. The Boston Tea Party was not only about taxation without representation, but also they were angry that the British East India Company basically owned members of Parliament and were able to hold a tea monopoly in the American colonies. After the nation was founded, their hatred and distrust of corporations were baked into their laws. Corporations required the state legislatures to approve them on a yearly basis. They could only trade in one commodity and had to be dissolved yearly and reapply. 
Corporations in the U.S. were viewed as temporary things, not an immortal entity like they are now. They were usually only created when they could find no other way to let an individual or partnership provide said service. This is why the National Bank was looked on so unfavorably. It was a corporation. The first Bank of America did not have its charter renewed after 20 years and dissolved. The second Bank of America was killed by Andrew Jackson. Corporations were treated this way for the first 100 years of the nation. However, the Civil War changed everything. After the war, without slavery, instead of it becoming a fair exchange of labor, many war profiteers got into politics and began to change the Republican Party from a free labor party to a pro-business party, and by pro-business they meant pro-corporation, and began to increase the scope and power and bankruptcy protections for corporations. First the trusts and monopolies and later the corporate giants that emerged after the Antitrust Act was passed. Almost immediately, labor abuse began. If a corporation or trust could figure out some way to screw over their workers, they would, often bringing in prisoners, most of whom were former slaves charged on dubious crimes, to undercut free labor pay, or to bring in desperate immigrants to also undercut pay. And since these people didn't know their rights, weren't used to American freedoms, and had issues with the language, they were often treated no better than the prisoners. Also, many of the companies were in remote areas such as coal country and government reach was pretty much nil. These remote area workers had zero safety protections and the company would do anything to keep them as workers. An example would be the company store, which was essentially indentured servitude. The company had a monopoly on any good you could purchase, so they would jack the prices up and if you tried to run away, they could legally grab you as a free citizen and drag you back until you had repaid your debt. And since you had to buy stuff, you would never get out of debt, so it was slavery, just with more steps. Chapter 4. The Untold Story of Patent Laws and Marxism The second industrial revolution made possible by government spending creating the standardized system of replaceable parts that was the first American invention that blew the rest of the world away, and whose patents were made open source by law if a factory had a government contract, should have been a massive boon for the average American worker. Instead, the new pro-business government changed the patent laws, the new technology decimated old jobs, which was great, but it also decimated the communities and networking protections they had created, ensuring labor abuse was going to happen. The government was truly owned by trusts at this time, as the founders had so feared. And with socialism, communism, and anarchism spreading, the idea of unionizing to the workers as alternative ideas to what they were experiencing the government would happily supply soldiers, militia, and secret agents called Pinkertons to come in and bust heads, or even massacre some of them. Ireland had it even worse, as they were a subject nation and essentially a tributary, and had few to no rights. Massacres happened in mass, British corporations got the military help to prevent any unionizing. But then most of Europe was used to anti-unionizing, as the lines blurred between serfdom and modern free labor, and lords and the modern wealthy. It was in this time that Karl Marx wrote Das Kapital. In his younger years, he had helped to write the Communist Manifesto in London with Friedrich Engels, back when the term communism really was just synonymous with socialism and just about anything that involved unionizing and government providing for things. Communism as the Soviets know it was a utopian yet inevitable ideal that Marx believed that at a certain point, automation would move us into a post-scarcity era much like Star Trek or space communism as it's jokingly referred to. 
He knew it would take centuries and a phase of regulated capitalism to build up the infrastructure, both mental and physical, to reach that level of automation. Sadly, Stalin believed pseudoscientists that the level of prosperity and automation was just decades away, leading to the death of millions, through starvation from poor farming techniques. Unlike what most Americans are led to believe, automation was the very core of the philosophy. Most of the beginning of the Communist Manifesto is praising capitalism, or the bourgeois class, for rapidly destroying the old systems of feudalism and ramping up automation. He viewed it as a wonderful thing, but with some of the same problems that Adam Smith warned about. And like Smith pointed out, that the assembly line and factory work drained the personal satisfaction of seeing the results of their hard work, making them incredibly dull people, or as Marx called it, alienation. But he took the problem even further, that automation in the first industrial revolution had destroyed not only the old feudalism and lordships, but also had broken the old guilds and communities. And there became a repeated pattern of automation destroying communities and jobs and therefore destroying worker pay protections, ensuring that the very rich could easily gain more and more money off of the labor of the workers doing the actual work. Other than Marx's disagreement with the abuses of minorities and women, Marx would have gotten on quite well with some of the founding fathers, especially Thomas Paine, who spoke strongly for a welfare state though also with most of them for their distrust of corporations and idealization of workers owning their own personal property and means of production. Though by the time of his death and publishing of Das Kapital, corporate interests that both Marx and the founders hated and feared had taken over the U.S. His use of the word capitalism really only referred to the corporations or wealthy people who made money off of labor and others, while anyone could make as much money off of their own labor using the free market, which other economists at the time began making synonyms with the word capitalism. Which is why if you're having an argument with a socialist and they start hating on capitalism and you start defending it, both are legitimate definitions, but you may be talking about completely different things. Marx was for destroying slavery, destroying marriage as it was at the time, which was a man essentially owning a woman and his kids, setting up unions to control and collectively own the means of production, most likely through the government, and prevent that labor from being undervalued and rich people getting fat off of the hard work of the individual worker. He was also for the welfare state to protect anyone who either couldn't care for themselves or who was in job transition from automation destroying their jobs. And no government had ever had that amount of power he idealized. He was a little naive in how dangerous that type of government could be in restricting freedom, even though he was all for freedom and democracy as a cornerstone of government, but didn't stress it as much as he should have, as those were jettisoned from the dogmatic following of his work by the communist nations that claimed to represent his ideology, even though he would have been horrified by the actions done in his name, if he had still been alive. It is funny that in communist China, Marx is required reading as gospel, and so young people are starting to try and unionize, and the communist party is crushing it. His works had the biggest impact on labor thought throughout the world and caused the uprising and struggles of unions, even if they didn't buy into all of his ideas. If your parent was in a union and fought for the good cost of living you grew up with, you can thank Marx for some of that. So, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. Please subscribe, and if your podcast site has the option, give me a like or review. I'll be doing this podcast weekly and try to get it out on the same day, so I hope to see you here next week, ready to be filled with new ideas. A big thank you goes out to Elias Garcia Guevara and Joe Taylor, who sponsor the show at $10 a month at the Wapawet level on Patreon. Please consider donating as well if you can, and thank you all for listening.